0: I'd like to make some remarks about fasting. This is not a how-to video. You you could find many people uh, better capable of doing that than me. But it's a question about why fast, and the answer to my imposed question is liturgy. Everything that I think of, I think of in uh, liturgical terms. I do liturgical theology. Here's the background for it and then um, I have a PowerPoint to show to you. I am an adult convert to the Catholic Church. I say about myself that I'm not a cradle Catholic, I'm a credo Catholic. Three authors were especially influential, a whole host of them, but three were especially influential in bringing me into the church. Uh, One was Chesterton, the second was Louis Boyer. And a third was my own self. When I was writing my dissertation, I wrote myself into Catholicism in Chapter 5 of the dissertation. In those early days, we made our first uh, experiments with fasting, first little tests, and I remember this um, recollection. We got about uh, three weeks into Lent, and then had the um, sensation as a a new uh, neophyte experimenting with fasting. Oh, oh, I I think I get it now. Oh, I see. I get it. This is what fasting is supposed to teach us. Uh, So now that I have learned the lesson, can we quit? Or do you Catholics actually think that You can practice religion with your body as well as with your mind, as well as with your affections. So you use your body through the whole Lent, even after you've learned the lesson. What if fasting isn't just a teaching tool, a didactic tool? Uh, What if it has a deeper meaning than that? And then I think I had a clue about the deeper meaning when one day I heard a woman say, uh, this Lent I'm going to uh, give up being so angry with my children and I thought uh, that's good that's a worthy goal I hope that when Lent ends uh, you strengthen some moral muscle and you're uh, not as angry with your children for the rest of the year either but I thought of the fact that in the fasting instructions I knew you could start again something at the end of Lent and I had a uh, eight-inch chocolate bunny and a bag of uh, M&Ms in the cupboard that I was waiting to jump on as soon as I got home from the Easter Vigil. That struck me as odd. There must be a difference between the kind of fasting where you give up something that you think is bad and you shouldn't start again, and the kind of fasting in which you're nevertheless going to start it again, and uh, this is the uh, source of this little um, exercise of thinking. Chesterton wrote, nothing is more common than to find a modern critic writing something like this. Christianity was a movement of ascetics, a rush into the desert, a refuge in the cloister, a renunciation of all of life and happiness. That this was part of a gloomy and inhuman reaction against nature itself, a hatred of the body, a horror of the material universe, a kind of universal suicide of the senses and even of the self. Now, the most extraordinary thing about all this is, it is, is that it is quite true, and in every detail except that it happens to be attributed to the wrong person. It is not true of the church, it is true of the heretics condemned by the church. The early church was ascetic, but she proved she was not pessimistic, was ascetic, not pessimistic. And she proved it by condemning the pessimists the creed declared that man was sinful but it did not declare that life was evil and it proved it by damning those who did the condemnation of the early heretics is itself condemned as something crabbed and narrow but in truth it was proof that the church meant to be brotherly and broad it proved that the primitive catholics were especially eager to explain they did not think man utterly vile, they did not think life incurably miserable, they did not think marriage a sin or procreation a tragedy. They were ascetic because asceticism was the only possible purge of the sins of the world. But in the thunder of their anathemas they affirmed forever that their asceticism was not to be anti-human or anti-natural, that they did wish to purge the world, and not destroy it. Whatever ascetical discipline you take up when you're fasting, it's not because the thing is bad. Again from his uh, um, a biography of Francis, it may seem a paradox to say that a man may be transported, transported with joy to discover that he's in debt. It's the key to all the problems of Franciscan morality which puzzle the merely modern mind, but above all, it is the key of asceticism. The key of asceticism is to discover that we are in debt. Because it's the highest and holiest of the paradoxes that a man who really knows he cannot pay his debt will be forever paying it. He will be forever giving back what he cannot give back and cannot be expected to give back. He will always be throwing things away into a bottomless pit of unfathomable thanks. It's almost like there's some connection between ascesis and thanksgiving. Oh yeah, what was that Greek word for thanksgiving? Eucharist? We are not generous enough to be ascetics. One might almost say not genial enough to be ascetics. Asceticism cannot be understood outside of love, this is me now trying to interpret Chesterton, because love is the cause of grace which causes a human response. Chesterton observes that the same principle is at work in romantic love. If romance ever fell out of fashion, if people were not falling in love with one another, we would—they would they would have, such people would have a difficulty understanding behaviors that were caused by motivations that you couldn't understand unless you yourself had also sometimes been in love. We should have the same sort of unintelligent sneers and unimaginative questions, and the lengths to which lovers go might appear ridiculous. Men will ask what selfish sort of woman it must have been who ruthlessly exacted a tribute in the form of flowers, or what an avaricious creature she can have been to have demanded solid gold in the form of a ring. You get his point? Just as they asked what cruel kind of God can have demanded sacrifice and self-denial. But this would only be because persons who have not understood the delight cannot understand the asceticism. They will have lost the clue to all that lovers meant by love and will not understand that it was because the thing was not demanded that it was done. Because the thing was not demanded, it was done. The whole point about Francis is that he certainly was ascetical and he certainly was not gloomy. Well, let's see if we could apply this mode of thinking to the Christian principle of fasting. Why do Christians fast? That's my question. That was my question when I came into the church and I'm asking it together with you now. I'm going to propose that there are two kinds of fasting and this one is the most familiar it's a repentant fast the hospital is a church and the church is a hospital for sinners all the powers possessed by the church i mean her liturgy her sacraments the deposit of faith the hierarchy or magisterium <clears throat> all these powers exist for one reason to cure the sinner why has christ entrusted the church with sacrament and liturgy to cure sinners with scripture and creed, to cure sinners. With hierarchy and magisterium, to cure sinners. Well, did you notice? I've just named the three offices of the church, the, her munera, sanctifying, teaching, and governing, priest, prophet, and king. and every activity, the church is oriented to this ultimate eternal end. And my point now is that she fulfills this task as truly in her office of governing as she does in her offices of teaching and sanctifying. Don't think the church is being more truly herself when teaching and sanctifying than when disciplining. And the fasting discipline she imposes exists for the very same purpose as everything she does in her uh, priestly and prophetic office, namely to lead to union with God. What reasons are there to fast? To discipline your intake of food, people fast for health reasons, like if their cholesterol is too high, for medical reasons, like before a blood test. I went to my uh, annual physical a month ago and had to fast in the morning to go over to the blood work uh, office afterwards. Some people fast for reasons of vanity, like the magazines encourage. There's athletic fasting, like the coach insists. There could be moral reasons, you could fast in protest of something. There are religious reasons to fast, all religions use fasting as a tool. If fasting means uh, uh, lessening your intake of food, there's also the um, sad reasons uh, some have for fasting, like anorexia or depression. But just as a fast of the hospital patient is different from the fast of the supermodel by reason of motive and end, my proposition is that the liturgical fast is different from all other fasts by its purpose and telos. And what is the motive and end of the liturgical fast? It's explained in scripture. Jesus knew his scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. Here's some sayings from ascetical writers about the value of fasting. Let your weapons be tears and continuous fasting. Understand what I say. There can be no knowledge of the mysteries of God on a full stomach. It's tough on uh, well-fed academics who are trying to understand the mysteries of God. Maximus Confessor writes, almsgiving heals the irascible part of the soul, fasting extinguishes the concupiscible part. Do you want to get a handle on your concupiscence? Start with fasting. John Clamacus wonders how astounding it is that the incorporeal mind can be defiled and darkened by the body. We're made up of um, spirit and body But unlike Platonists who think that the spirit is good and the body is bad and uh, what we're searching for is to be rid of the body and just live in the spiritual realm, Christians know that God became a body, became man, became flesh. And so it's astonishing that the immaterial spirit can be purified and refined by clay. Liturgical fasting is a refutation of the idea of uh, gnostic dualism that uh, matter is bad yes matter is good you use your body for your spirituality being body soul creatures the remedy has to be applied to the soul through the body by means of the body along with the body the reason the body's involved is because a harmony has been disrupted and faculties are in disorder so Vladimir Solovyov says the aim of asceticism is not to free the soul from the body but to free both the soul and the body from the problem of the passions the purpose of asceticism is not to weaken the flesh but to strengthen the spirit and when the spirit is strengthened there can be a transfiguration of flesh abbas refers to this as a spiritual struggle if in the meeting at church on sunday a brother drinks three cups they allowed wine during feast days otherwise it's water but on feast days they gave a glass of wine and if somebody had, had three cups of wine would that be much and an old man said if there were no satan it would not be much it's a spiritual struggle this is a passage from john clemachus ladder of divine ascent and it's uh, just so typical of john he uh, makes paragraphs every now and again that have uh, um a list that goes by in staccato speed, like a metronome, I translate it into bullet points. Fasting ends lust, roots out bad thoughts, frees one from evil dreams. Fasting makes for purity of prayer, an enlightened soul, a watchful mind, a deliverance from blindness. Fasting is the door of compunction, humble sighing, joyful contrition an end to chatter, an occasion for silence, a custodian of obedience, lightening of sleep, health of the body, agent of dispassion, a remission of sins, and the gate to paradise. Indeed, the delight of paradise. Why fast? Maybe we need to put this on our refrigerator door on day 22 of Lent so that we remember uh, why we started it. Well, let me summarize fasting type one and uh, being an academic, I'll summarize by stealing the words of another, but it's not stealing if I um, quote him, if I acknowledge it, then it's not plagiarism. Callistos Ware is an Orthodox priest and theologian. And he describes this as the sinner's fast, namely a fast of repentance. Our primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependence upon God. And if practiced seriously, the Lenten abstinence from food, particularly in the opening days, the days in which I was uh, brought to think, I think I got it now. I've understood everything you want to teach me. In those opening days, it involves a considerable measure of real hunger and a feeling of tiredness and physical exhaustion. And the purpose of this is to lead us in turn to a sense of inward brokenness and contrition, to bring us to the point where we can appreciate the full force of Christ's statement, without me you can do nothing. If we always take our fill of food and drink, we easily grow overconfident in our own abilities. We we acquire a false sense of autonomy and self-sufficiency. The observance of a physical fast undermines this sinful complacency. It's a nice summary of a first reason for fasting, type one fasting, contrition, repentance. But why did Jesus fast? If Jesus was without sin, why did he fast? Maybe there's another reason for fasting, one that I'm trying to uh, get my wrap my wits around. Ware said that the primary aim of fasting is to make us conscious of our dependence upon God. We need that. The sinner finds a path to this consciousness of dependence upon God, a path that is full of brokenness and contrition. But Christ wouldn't. Christ would find it to be a royal path that led from creation to creator. It was the very path intended for Adam and Eve from the beginning. And what the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam is now doing. Well, liturgical life is Christ's life in us and he knew how to do the world. That's my teacher's definition of liturgy. Kavanaugh would say liturgy is doing the world the way the world was meant to be done. Jesus, the premier liturgist, knows how to do the world. He's trying to teach it to us. So Matthew and Luke tell the story of a different reason for fasting. Christ was not a sinner. His was not a repentant fast. It was a liturgical fast of oblation, sacrifice, lifting up to God. Jesus was fasting because we're told by Scripture, man does not live by bread alone. Now, when we find those words on the lips of a sinner, it's a confession of idolatry. I do try to live by bread alone. I do try to live by things of this world. I do try to live by my own accomplishments. When we admit that man does not live by bread alone, a sinner is admitting that we've replaced our hunger for God with a hunger for finite things. But when we find those words on the lips of the Son of Man, it's a proclamation of the proper relationship between the things of earth and the things of heaven. And that's the final reason for fasting. Jesus is praising the Father by sacrificial worship. It's a liturgical praise fast. It's doing the world the way the world is meant to be done. Remember that the church is both a hospital for sinners and a nursery for saints. And the sinner must use fasting for mortification but the saint in training finds that fasting's true liturgical purpose is for deification being graced by god sanctification being adopted by god the greek's uh, fathers used this word theosis to be deified to be uh, taken up into god to be adopted by god all the church fathers said God became man so that man might be made divine that's the great exchange in the incarnation so the repentant fast does battle with the passions but the nursery for saints wants to enable the liturgical fast we were not created for bread alone but for fellowship with the trinity that's the deification part union with God You were not created, man was not created for union with uh, things of this world, because the things of this world are going to end at some point. They were created for union with God. So Paul Evdokomov, an Orthodox theologian, contemporary, writes, Asceticism has nothing to do with moralism, it's not trying to be gooder, because we're such bad. The contrary of sin is not virtue, but the faith of the saints. Moralism exercises natural forces, and its fundamental voluntarism submits human behavior to moral imperatives. On the other hand, the virtue of the ascetics has an entirely different resonance. It designates the human dynamism set in motion by the presence of God. Moral and sociological principles are powerless. They cannot pardon, or absolve, or wipe out a fault, or raise the dead try a little harder let's train you in your morality let's uh, be more obedient to the Commandments that's that's powerless because liturgical asceticism is oriented towards deification moral reasoning alone cannot understand it and here's how the awareness of that difference came to me I told you the story at the beginning The woman was going to give up something she regretted. Something bad. I don't want to be so angry with my children. This Lent, I'm going to work on that discipline. Good for you. I hope you build some strength in doing that. But I have something waiting for me that I've given up for 40 days. What's going on? There's a difference between some moral discipline where you give up something because you think it's bad for you and an ascetical discipline where you give up something that you think is good why would you give up something that's good there's the mystery this is what i'm trying to get at if it's bad for you you may have to give up chocolate because you're a diabetic i'm going to give up chocolate for lent but i'm i've got it stored in the cupboard it's waiting for me an alcoholic should give up wine But somebody else might choose to give up wine for Lent. The goal here is some kind of improvement, self-improvement. The goal here is to drop what we hold in our hands so that God can uh, be placed in them. Now, I grant that there's a moral element to liturgical asceticism, but I don't think it's its main purpose. And C.S. Lewis, I think, said it well, mere improvement is not redemption, though. Redemption always improves people, even here and now. But God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged creature. Purpose of the incarnation and the paschal mystery and the resurrection wasn't uh, to make my friend Flick a jump higher, it was to make a pegasus, to make a winged horse. Well, fasting can reveal a joy for which the human race is created, but which few know. As long as there's a trace of ego in the heart, humility will feel like humiliation. And as long as there's a trace of ego in the heart, obedience will feel like it's forced. I think C.S. Lewis might help us understand this mystery. He wrote a three-volume space trilogy, and the second of these is titled *Perelandra*, and it's the story of a planet which hasn't yet fallen. There Adam and Eve hasn't yet committed the sin and been exiled. And the protagonist, uh, Ransom, finds himself there and also another person who's uh, diabolically possessed and through whom satan is working so the premise of the book for you to imagine yourself into is what if you were at in the garden of eden trying to talk eve out of eating the apple that's what ransom faces he has to convince this green lady on the planet not to disobey god the commandment was uh, not to sleep on the solid land just to stay on the floating islands and the devil has tried all his reasoning on her he said uh, on other planets people sleep on solid land oh and i bet he only said it to see whether you're brave enough to walk out into some new adventure and whatnot and now ransom has to make his counter argument he says i think he made one law of that kind a law which wasn't a moral law, you don't sleep on the solid land because it's bad to do it. It's not because it's bad, it's because he's commanded it. He's commanded you not to do it. And I think he made one law of that kind, so that there might be obedience. In all these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what also seems in your good in your eyes too. But is love content with that? You do these things, yes, because they are his will, but not only because they are his will. And where can you get a taste of the joy of obeying unless he bids you to do something for which his bidding is the only reason? When we spoke last night, you said that if you, you told the beasts to walk on their heads, they would delight to do so because she's queen of this world. So I know well what uh, you understand what I'm saying. She replies, Oh brave Ransom, this is the best you have said yet. This makes me older far, but it doesn't feel like the oldness the other one is giving me. How well I see it. We cannot walk out of Maladil's will, name for God on this planet. But he has given us a way to walk out of our will. And there could be no way to do that except by a command like this. Walk out of our own will. It's like passing out through the world's roof into deep heaven and all beyond is love himself. I knew that there was joy. This is the punchline now. I knew there was joy in looking upon the fixed island and laying down all thought of ever living there. But I did not understand until now why that joy? Thomas Aquinas wrote, We do not offend God except by doing something contrary to our own good. Don't burn your hand on the stove. Don't play in the street. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't murder. Everything God commands is for our good. Every commandment he gives us is for our good. Every commandment we obey serves our good. But one commandment feels different. It's offered as an opportunity for us to give ourselves as gift to God. Give ourselves as gift to God. He's circling the liturgical drain here. The joy to be had in keeping this type of law is a joy known only to lovers, to spouses, to parents, to friends, especially to that triune fellowship of lovers. It's the delight of obedience, the delight of being bound in covenant. The son's total delight is to do what his father tells him. As the green lady found joy in looking at the fixed land but laying down all thought of living there, Jesus found joy in looking upon the stones and laying down all thought of making them bread, simply because that was not the father's will. If the fall was an act of disobedience, the reversal of that fall must be an act of obedience then humanity could resume its ascent to heaven we get a glimpse of that ascetical obedience Jesus lived always in his father's will Mary gave her fiat the Saints have made their will pliable by prayer fasting and almsgiving liturgical asceticism liturgical asceticism trains us for a radically free obedience man was not made for bread alone meaning translate man was not made for the temporal alone he was made for the eternal I don't know what our asceticism would have looked like had the fall not taken place I tend to think that Adam and Eve did have a discipline a kind of asceticism you could call it a liturgical asceticism in the garden They didn't have the first kind of contrition and uh, repentance, but they did have the second kind. I tried that thought out on an Orthodox colleague once, and he said, yeah, there's a um, prayer in the church thanking God um, by saying if Adam had uh, kept his asceticism, we would not have to be doing ours. But I'm saying we do that asceticism, the very one that Christ, the new Adam, is teaching us. This discipline, this remaining uh, bound in covenant is exactly what Adam and Eve failed to do. The fall is the forfeiture of our liturgical career. We were made to be cosmic priests, and man and woman have forfeited that liturgical career. And it's a gravel uphill to uh, regain. Schman has defined original sin in terms of appetite. This is an interesting quote. In our perspective, the original sin is not primarily that humans have disobeyed God. The sin is that they ceased to be hungry for God and God alone. If a uh, marriage falls apart and the love is gone, is it because one or the other has ceased to obey the rules that the other is placing for him? You're supposed to keep the house clean, you're supposed to be home Saturday night, we get this ma- No, the sin is that they cease to be hungry for each other, to desire each other. The sin isn't a matter of disobedience. The sin is to cease to be hungry for God and God alone which means we cease to see the whole life depending on the whole world as a sacrament of communion with God. So the story of salvation can be told as a story of appetites, from the Garden of Eden, to the grace of manna in the desert, to Jesus 40 days, to the Eucharist, to the Messianic banquet The old Adam disobeyed in a garden, the new Adam obeyed in a desert. Adam had plenty to eat and he still hungered for the one forbidden thing. When Satan asked, Can you eat of every tree in the garden? they should have answered, Yes, they did. Uh, even that tree, Satan pointed out, they should have answered, Yes, someday we'll be able to eat of it, not yet. All the church fathers assume that. Eventually, God would have given Adam and Eve the fruit of that tree. Their sin was taking it prematurely, immaturely, on their own, not as a gift. That's the same answer then. Can you eat of the fruit of this tree? Yes, but not yet. Can you eat chocolate? Yes, but not for 40 more days. The new Adam had nothing to eat but did not sin because he only hungered for one thing, his father God. For Adam the command was a constraint, for the new Adam it was a joy. I think it appropriate to bring Mary in on this because she saw that joy. You may have seen this um, drawing picture before. I had in a summer course the sister who drew this picture she was from uh, Our Lady of the Mississippi she was in her late 20s taking some courses she died a few years after that from cancer and when I uh, mentioned this picture that I'd seen she uh, uh, graciously uh, gave me one I keep it stuck on the wall uh, next to my desk so I have it to watch I just think it's nice look how sad Eve is. When she realizes what she's done, and look how compassionate Mary is, it'll be all right. Do you feel him kick? He started to move and we will suck that, uh, stomp that sucker flat. I think it's a great, the, the new Eve and the old Eve. Well here are quotes to that effect. Vladimir Lasky, Eve listened to the seducer's word while in a state of innocent humanity. Mary listened to the angel's word while in a state of fallen humanity. Uh, fallen um, human beings, she who is immaculate. Boyer, Mary is not an unheard of, ex- of exception. She's a masterpiece of grace. Dante, thou art she by whom our human nature was so ennobled that it might become the creator, it's becoming to him, it's appropriate for him to create himself his creature. Uh, Charles Williams translates it, the worker, uh, it so ennobled human nature that its worker, God, capital W, did not disdain to become its work. Catechism, Mary is the masterpiece of the mission of a Son and the Spirit in the fullness of time for the first time in the plan of salvation and because his spirit had prepared her the father found the dwelling place found the dwelling place where his son and spirit could dwell among men what was accomplished bodily in the inviolate Mary when the fullness of the Godhead appeared in Christ by the grace of virginity is accomplished in every soul that remains virgin the Lord does not come with bodily presence since we no longer know Christ according to the flesh, but he dwells in the soul spiritually, and every birth of faith is like a virgin birth. Ephraim the Syrian summarized four main episodes that go into the cosmic drama under which we are living. At the fall, Adam and Eve lost the robe of glory with which they had been originally clothed in paradise. This uh, little joke uh, is from C.S. Lewis in his um, uh, study on words. He points out that though we say the word naked in two syllables, uh, the original meaning of the word is in one syllable, naked. To nake something is to remove its covering. You nake an orange before you eat it. You naked a nut in order to eat the kernel. There are leaves on the ground. They have to be raked. Uh, we're going too fast. You have to uh, press the middle pedal, and then the car is braked. Well, Adam and Eve were naked. They were stripped with the, uh, of the robe of glory. In order to reclothe the naked Adam and Eve, God himself puts on the body from Mary and in baptism, Christ laid that robe of glory in the river Jordan, making it available once again for humanity to put on at baptism. I picture that uh, from Christ went into the waters of the Jordan in order to sanctify them. The way he sanctified every grave by laying in the tomb, he sanctified every baptismal font by laying in the uh, Jordan River. And from that Jordan, go these little rivulets downstream into every baptismal font in the world, pooling up there. Then at his or her baptism, the individual Christian puts on the robe of glory, re-entering the, oh, have you ever thought of it this way? The terrestrial anticipation of the eschatological paradise, that is the church. make t-shirts. I keep thinking of uh, uh, lines in the uh, stuff that I read that would make great t-shirts. I belong to the terrestrial anticipation of the eschatological paradise. Oh really? Tell me about it. Finally at the resurrection of the dead the just will in all reality re-enter the celestial paradise clothed in their robes of glory. This is the story of sin, redemption, and the eschatological completion of creation. The liturgical fast weans our appetites from the temporal, not because bread and chocolate are bad, but because there is a higher good we were created to hunger for. And we must retrain our appetites for that higher good. That's the reason for the fast. It's a training of our appetites. Neither the bread nor the stone from which it would have been made are sinful. Only doing something outside of his Father's will would be sinful. And our asceticism now consists of restructuring our appetites modeled after the Son who had only one desire. Purity of heart is to will one thing. For that to happen, Christ's appetite must become our appetite. That's called conversion if you can't do it all in one swoop and nobody can it's called extended conversion continued conversion lifelong conversion the power that led us to the font is further fed when we eat him in the Eucharist so we recover our appetites by giving ourselves giving ourselves totally over to him so that he can give us with himself in the spirit over to the Father Liturgical asceticism is sacrificial at the last. Now, I'm only half through. I had to do fasting. I had to make sense of the repentant fast and the liturgical fast. If our appetites were retrained, we have a whole new, um, joy ahead of us and so i'm uh, thinking of this as a little joke moving from desert to desserts whereas liturgical asceticism capacitates us to celebrate liturgy and whereas liturgy glorifies god and whereas we glorify god by the sort of life we live in the world And whereas asceticism controls our appetites before they control us, that's a line from John Climacus, control your uh, appetites before they control you, and whereas our appetites have been retrained, therefore we can find that everything in the world can be consecrated. The preliminary negative asceticism is only to clear out the silt to awaken the sleepwalker, to dust off the coin that bears the king's image so that the imago Dei can stand aright and offer the holy oblation in peace. This is a quote from Paul of Dokamov again. What does asceticism do? Clears out the silt in your life, awakens the sleepwalker, dusts off the coin. And where is the sacrificial oblation accomplished? It happens in both the sacred and the profane world. Um, Uh, Sorry, this is of Dokamov, and this is me. It's a line from uh, my little book, Consecrating the World. It happens in the former under sensible signs, and it happens in the latter by consecrating the world. Here's a um, uh, wisdom from uh, Charles Williams. I forgot that I can do that. Let's uh, uh, wander through my lecture notes, shall we? I'm sorry, it just occurred to me to think of it that way. In uh, Williams' study of the figure of Beatrice in the Divine Comedy, he describes Dante meeting an angel with two keys. One is silver and one is gold. And Williams says the two keys are two methods, one of rejection, one of affirmation, one of denial and one of affirming. Rejection is a silver key, which is more dear. Affirmation is a golden key, more difficult to use. But both are necessary for any life. Williams says the denial silver key is exhibited in the life of monks in the desert. Affirmation... The golden key is exhibited by liturgists in the world, secular Christians, but both are necessary for any life. Paul the thinks the key to what um, Williams means lies in the meaning of what of what uh, the meaning of the word consecrate. Recall that by consecration we mean not the separation of a thing from what is profane in order to reserve it exclusively or particularly for the divinity by consecration we mean the establishment of a thing's relationship to God according to its own order according to the exigency of the nature of the thing in the plan willed by God let me see if I can unpack this to consecrate the world is to re-establish it in its proper relationship to God and every single thing in it and that was the priestly activity for which adam and eve were created to consecrate the world that's the activity they forfeited that required a new adam to give this priestly activity back to his church the new eve if a thing were reestablished in its relationship to god then man and woman would be doing their task as cosmic priests If everything was reestablished in the relationship to God, then the liturgy would reach out from the sacred into the profane, from the church into the world, from the ritual into life. Here's the church. I'm doing an old uh, style with the apse. There's the altar. And here in the sanctuary, you find a picture, a model of heaven. Here in the nave, you find the people of the church, nave, navy, ark. Church is the ark. This is the um, place where the um, laics sit. And the narthex is a transition place from church to world my point here is that what goes on in the sanctuary affects their lives and plunges with them back into their life. Do the world the way the world was meant to be done. Chesterton described the Dark Ages as a period of purgation. Water itself needed to be washed. There's a joke by um, Stephen Wright, he had a, a bag of instant water but he didn't know what to add to it. And if the world had uh, so fallen into corruption that water itself needed to be cleansed, what could you use to cleanse it? Well, in the dark ages, water is washed and fire is purified. And after being purged of this idolatry, then man could return to nature with safety. And in his own conversion to Catholicism, Chesterton writes, he came to understand what Coventry Patmore meant, when he said calmly that it would have been quite as Catholic to decorate his mantelpiece with the Venus of Milo as with the Virgin. I wondered what Chesterton meant. I had to go and read Coventry Patmore. This is what he has to say about it. Patmore says that Satan is happy to play either side of the equation. He doesn't mind this and he doesn't mind this. Let me go down the left side first. Let's say the tempter's first task is to persuade us to our destruction by representing unclean things as clean. Adultery, theft, luxuria, envy. First he hardens our conscience to the point that we excuse our avarice and our lust and our gluttony. The first deception is to persuade us to take something that we should not be taking satan's first attack is to whisper in our ear that you can have what you want and that stifles ethics don't fence me in oh but if you resist him on that front then he comes around the backside and attacks on the other side by representing clean things as unclean if our conscience is pricked, his diabolical jujitsu rep- represents money, sex, and beer as unclean. There's my uh, contrast. The problem is not money, sex, and beer, it's avarice, lust, and gluttony. Satan will go with either. The second deception is to persuade us not to take something that we are permitted. The second is a whisper in the ear of the Puritan that stifles innocent enjoyment. In the first stage of our advance were purified by self-denial the second by denial almost equally laborious of the enemy's false charges this second right-hand column which is more difficult for us we could turn to c.s lewis for some uh, assistance in the pilgrim's regress the first book he wrote after his conversion He describes a protagonist, John, who thinks he's running away from a landlord who lives in a castle looming in the mountains above him and whom he hates. Half the things, half the rules the king gives, John hadn't ever ever heard of, and half of them forbid things he did every day and he couldn't imagine not doing. The rules told him that the landlord is extraordinarily kind and good, but will torture them to death at the slightest infraction, a pretext. So one day, John sees an island out his window in the opposite direction of the castle and he exclaims aloud in his immediate and deep reaction, I know now what I want. He does and he doesn't. He sees an island and it stirs something in him. He'd never seen the island before, he's never visited the island, he doesn't even know if he can get to the island. But the sight of the island has wound up the spring and its slow release is the plot of the remaining allegory. John goes away from his country, his people, and his father's household. Say, I'm trying to quote the verse as it appears in Genesis. Maybe Abraham was pulled, not pushed. And on his journey, John is attacked from two sides. From one side, materialism says, whoa, 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 whoa. Just be satisfied with what you have. Forget this pie in the sky. The material world and all its various pleasures are all you want. And on the journey, he's uh, tempted by the brown girls and by the um, vicious people in the north and by the sensual people in the south. But John's reply is if this world, the material world, is what I want, why am I so disappointed when I get it? The island has awakened in him an appetite or desire for something that the world cannot satisfy him. Well, then comes an attack from the other side. I don't know what to call this side. Materialism, secularism, makes good sense on the left. I think I'll call it puritanism. Curb your appetite. Don't indulge your craving. It's wicked to have this desire for the island. It will always disappoint you. To this, John replies, how can you say the island is all bad when longing for the island has brought me this far? John must learn a final lesson. Number one, he's learned that this world cannot be his end. If the world is what he wants, why is he so disappointed when he gets it? Second, he's learned that the island can't be all bad because the romantic desire for it is drawing him beyond the eastern and western ends of the world, beyond the limits of the world. So John realizes his third discovery. This is Lewis's own story. What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing we were desiring. Put in um, Mere Christianity and not in the pilgrim's Regress, Lewis writes it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, to draw us forward. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for the world. Chesterton's quote about the church condemning those who uh, were maniches uh, dualists who thought the world was bad, but on the other hand, never mistake things of the world for something else of which they are only a copy or an echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I will not find until after death. Lewis says we must pursue false objects until their falsity appears and then resolutely abandon them. If a staircase is constructed for the purpose of ascending from earth to heaven, each step on the staircase may be good, but evil results if we stop climbing and we just sit down like squatters on a particular step. Even Eden should not have satisfied Adam and Eve. They were to be called further up and further in. So Lewis says, every pleasure should be shafts of the glory as it strikes our sensibility. And every pleasure can be made into a channel of adoration. Is he still giving a Lenten talk? I think I am. Hugo Rahner says we live at the exact midpoint between heaven and earth. And only at that midpoint can we accept and lovingly embrace the world as God's handiwork, be pleased by it, be happy about it, enjoy it, and at the same time toss it aside as a child would toss a toy of which it had wearied In order to soar upward into the blessed seriousness which is God alone. Gregory the Great said in his three-volume Moralia on Job, our present life is the road by which we journey on to our home. And asceticism simply teaches us not to stop on the pathway. We can appreciate everything we find along the way, even islands, even bread, even chocolate, even desserts. But don't stop. There's no sin in being on the pathway. The spiritualists are wrong. We have a body, it's a good body. We have a world, material, it's good matter. But there is a sin in loving our road instead of our home. There's no sin in being on the road, being corporeal, having a finite body, being a homo viator, having responsibility, but there is sin in settling for the lesser and not letting it awaken an appetite for the greater. So I come to my conclusion, my description of liturgical fasting. It turns out in the end that fasting is not so much about us not consuming It is about us being consumed. The reason you drop something and not consume it and gobble it down, gluttonously, is so that you can give yourself over to God to be consumed. By what? Consumed by the love that flows between the persons of the Trinity. And the basis of that liturgical fast we can learn from the mouth of a talking horse of Narnia, whose name was Huin. When she meets Azen for the first time, she trots up to the great lion, and she says, Please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. I'd sooner be eaten by Christ than be fed by the world. The liturgical fast lifts our eyes above every temporal horizon, and when we see the Word of God in the flesh, we realize that man was not made to live by bread alone.